Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is So What Do You Do All Day? I'm Jenny Queen, and today we're doing something a little bit different. We've got a two-part series for you. We're talking to Jesse Fink and Luis Navia, who worked together to write Pure Narco, a book about Luis and his 25 years as a narco-traficante, working for every cartel in Mexico and Colombia that you ever heard of or you never heard of. He managed to do all this crazy stuff and somehow is not dead or incarcerated. It's a pretty fascinating story. And I've, I've, like everybody else, done the whole Netflix thing with narcos. And I've read several narco-type books afterward. And I went into Pure Narco thinking I knew what I was getting into. It's something else entirely. Jesse is a writer of several books. Um, He started out in sports writing, and then did a hard swerve into rock and roll with a book about the Young Brothers and ACDC, and then Bon Scott. And in the process of researching the Bon Scott book, he met this guy, Luis Navia, this narco-traficante. And that's where Pure Narco comes from. Jesse, um, how did you find this subject? Um, as you say, very complicated. Um <laughs> When when we were introduced, um, we were introduced by a, a mutual friend that um, I had made when I visited Miami in 2015. And she came to me and she said she knew a cocaine trafficker who was interested in, you know, writing a book who was talking to a journalist from Harper's Magazine in the US and... Um, Harper's had sent a, a journalist down to Miami to talk to this guy, to talk to some federal agents down there in preparation for a feature story. Uh, and this trafficker was more interested in, in actually doing a book rather than an article. And so he, he sort of was ambivalent about sort of telling his life story to this journalist from Harper's magazine. So... She connected us through WhatsApp, and, and this was late 2017. I'd just finished the book tour for uh, a book that I'd written on Bon Scott called Bon the Last Highway. Um, didn't have anything sort of in the works, and I thought, well, you know, I've got nothing to lose by talking to this guy. So over a period of a few months, we um, started talking about, you know, what it what it might sort of entail. And initially his idea of his life was very much that it was a, like a slapstick comedy. 
<laughs> the Mr. Magoo. Yeah, which he sees himself as a sort of a Mr. Magoo type character. And various uh, attempts had been made to sort of, you know, write treatments, uh, you know, film treatments of, of his story. But I, I just felt like they didn't kind of um, quite sort of um, nail, you know, the, you know, the, the, the essence of, of what I saw as the, the story, which was... Um, as you as you said in your intro, sort of a, a morality tale, um, a tale of you know a man trying to live up to his father, a tale of um, um, you know Miami in the eighties of about greed, you know a whole number of themes. But so there was there was the way that he wanted to see the story, and then there was the way that I saw the story. And when you're working with someone and you're sharing a credit, of course, he has an idea about how the book should end up, and you have an idea about how you want to write it, and you have to marry the two. And so there's there's tension there. And you know we had a lot of heated moments putting the book together about what was going to go in, what was going to get left out. But the 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 most difficult part for me was, I guess there were a number of elements that I had to sort of weave together, which were um, his personal story, um, you know, his 25 years inside the cartels, um, the story of, I guess, you know, the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Which is, it's a pretty big story all by itself. Yeah. I mean, and it's been told many times, yeah. you know. Um, the the story of the agents who caught him, you know, and getting them on board and getting them to open up, which, you know, was uh, very difficult in itself. And I thought the most important part was um, telling the story of uh, his family. So, you know, it, it took a long time for me to convince... Uh, Lewis's ex-wife to to open up and you know to to speak to his son and and daughter. Yeah, but that's pretty. Much, that's one of the better parts of the and book. The, and the sister. Um, the perspective that comes from um, yeah. his ex-wife is extraordinary. Yeah, she's, I mean, she in in her own right is a phenomenal character. Yeah, she's an amazing woman, you know, and incredibly um, loyal and and courageous and strong, and. But she had a lot of uh, ambivalence about, you know, getting involved and opening up. And and so it's a process of, um, you know, convincing them to get involved. But, you know, it, just just talking to Lewis, too, it was, a, it was a process of getting him to trust me to reveal his own vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And that is something that takes a long time I would think to so. happen. I would think so. And I think having read it, he places so much emphasis on straight shooting, on honesty, on do not ever lie to me, things mm. like that, mm. um, that you would want to make very sure that everything you say to him is um, straight down the line, I guess. Mm. Um, just because his, my impression from the book anyway, this personality is not forgiving of falsehood or um, no. misrepresentation. No, and but that that cut both ways. It was like, you know, Yeah, I get that impression here right now. <laughs> yeah, if you if you were going to if you were going to if you're going to talk to me and tell me your story, Lewis, you know, and we're going to do this, you know, don't bullshit me on anything, you know. Um, and and he understood that and I, and you know, I said, look, you know, if, if we're going to go to the trouble of, of writing this book and it's going to take two and two and a half years to do it, 
it's got to be honest. And the only way that you're going to connect with uh, readers, you know, people who are, I guess, you know, over, oversaturated with sort of narco content and, and, and wary of, of hearing the same stories time and time again, um, you've got to be honest. You've got to be authentic. Otherwise, it's just, it's just not going to resonate with them. Well, you succeeded wildly there, um, both of you, because I have never read anything like this. Um, <laughs> just was struck again and again and again the whole time I'm reading, you know, that it's I've never read anything that drew me in in this genre, certainly. But it, it drew me in like a, like a great novel does, really. Um, but there, I don't know, there are themes in there that you just did not expect going in. And then the way you paced the book is fascinating because, you know, I expect, I guess I expected you to go chronologically. And instead, there's a little bit of a jump here and there. And and you get more of the measure of the man that way. Mm. Like the moment where you find out that his attempt to go straight with his macadamia farm has been thwarted mm. um, by... Robert Harley. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Who, who he's friends with now, yeah. but has been thwarted. My stomach literally fell down to my feet. Like I was like, mm. oh man, <laughs> I really wanted that to happen for him. Mm. And I knew it wasn't going to. I knew mm. the end of the story. Mm. But, you know, that's a great, that's a great storytelling capacity then. If mm. I knew it was what was going to happen mm. and my heart was still broken, mm. you did a great job there. Thank you very much. <laughs> was that hard? Did you story, like, I don't know, the storyboard, do you like, do you like lay out the story? Do you keep it all in your head? How do you? I think it's all in my head. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't really plot it out at all. Uh, wow. I guess I just work off, you know, one word document and just throw sort of bits, snippets in, into this one document and it, it starts to sort of you know, um, become clear after a while wh where you're going. But I guess I thought, uh, you know, I did want to start with the the arrest in Venezuela. Yeah. Because that's sort of an, uh, you know, an action scene, mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, it just happened to sort of be spread out over eight chapters. And, you know, there's also like a 50-page introduction by me. Uh, <laughs> there is quite an introduction. But... Uh, yeah, and I, I probably am at fault for writing long introductions over the course of my career, but I felt like it was necessary to kind of set out uh, what you're about to read and, and who you're about to be introduced to. And, you know, of course, he has no celebrity whatsoever. So, you you know, you walk into a bookstore, you don't have no idea who this person is. He's, he's not Pablo Escobar. He's, he's someone you've never heard of. But why why should you read this book? Well, I, I set out why you should read it, because he's a fascinating character. God, he is, though. I mean, really fascinating. In the introduction, I get the impression, and maybe it comes from having written the Bond Scott book first, you sound almost prickly about the fact that he w worked in narcotics in the first place, that he trafficked narcotics in the first place. It's the only place where I pick up any judgment at all. The whole play, all the way through the entire book itself, there's no feeling of judgment or anything. Mm. But there's this moment in the introduction where you're like, no, this is crap. Mm. Um, and I wondered if that's just something I picked up on that's not actually there, or mm. if you had come off this Bon Scott book and been like, man, that's such a waste. Um, and then that colored your opinion of the business? I just wasn't sure. Uh, no. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm anti-drugs. I don't take drugs. I'm not interested in drugs. Um, I've seen 
the devastation that the yeah. drugs have, have have had on you know numerous people. Um, I guess I just wanted to set out that by writing this book, I wasn't trying to glorify it in any way. Okay. You know, and and just um, you know preface the preface the book with you know I guess a statement saying. Um, what you're what you're about to read is not a glorification of the drug industry, right. you know, because there are statements made by Lewis in the book where, he, you know, he makes out like the drug industry is the best industry in the world. I don't want <laughs> people going out there and becoming drug traffickers. Oh my lord! <laughs> I would hope that after you read that, you wouldn't you wouldn't come away with the idea yeah. that it's a good idea or yeah. A, yeah. a good thing. And if you ask him, what if your kid? Told him, told you that he wanted to get into the cocaine racket. I'm pretty sure he'd be like, "Yeah, no, mm. I don't think that'd be a great idea." No, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> but he's quite nostalgic for it, you know. Well, he had like, he had everything he ever wanted in terms of material good. He had adrenaline, uh, drugs, women, mm. nice cars. He had a '65 Mustang. That's my dream. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not gonna go sell a bunch of blow to get it, but <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wish I had a '65 Mustang. So I can understand being nostalgic for a life where everything was at your fingertips. Um, it's just there's a lot of blowback to that. Um, mm. The the scene that I, the other thing that like hit me hardest in the entire thing was at the beginning um, in talking about the the failed or the Operation Journey, I believe it was. Um, so there were the indigenous people in the Orinoco mm. that were kind of poking around the shipments and the order came from above, not to Lewis, but mm. to the people he was involved with or worked under him or whatever, or under the, probably the suppliers to um, shoot the people. Mm. And that happened. Mm. And he says it hurt his soul. Mm. And it took my breath away. Um I mean, that was shocking when he said that. Jesus, um, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's that's like a crime against humanity sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that. That was interesting for me. Like the, the, his 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 character is like you know, Lewis is a moral person, but he was working in an incredibly immoral industry and and managed to at various times you know put aside that morality just to to function. Yeah. And, ex- and exist within that world. Did you ever get the feeling that he didn't fully choose that life so much? Because I noticed he was, when he met Bia, was mm. he 26, 23? Yeah, 23. And then what? I mean, you know, you're 23, you're friends with this feared person. Do you step back? Can you step back? I, 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 I just felt a little less judgmental of him than I might have being aware of his age and his, um, you know, he was in lust with this woman and it just happened so quickly. I don't know that he initially anyway made the choice. Lewis has a full throttle personality, you know, Uh, and, you know, he loves to, he loves to party. He likes to have a drink. When he gets past a certain point, there's no stopping him. And like when... We were in uh, St. Petersburg in Florida, and we went out one night with Eric Kolbinski, who is a former DEA agent who lives up in St. Petersburg, and and Lewis. You know, we sort of hit the town, went to various bars, and 
you know, it was way past midnight and, you know, sort of bars were sort of closing down. And we went into one bar and, and there was a, like a, um, a stage where, you know, band equipment had been set up and there was a drum kit and, and Lewis just went up and started <laughs> playing the drums. <laughs> like, who does that? <laughs> oh, I'm a singer-songwriter, musician. I know some people who might do that, yeah. but um, it's a certain personality type. <laughs> exactly. It's a certain personality. You know, he just had, he had no problem just sort of going up to this drum kit and starting to play the drums. Someone else's drum kit, but that's, but that's Lewis. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's pretty funny though, and I guess he, he's at one of those point of no return drinkers. Um, yeah, you know, we've all met them. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, as you know, he 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 could go for days. So you can imagine that you know in the early eighties when uh, you know I guess. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The cocaine cowboys era was at its was at its peak, and you know he was young and had money and was hanging out with these very colourful Colombians. He was having the time of his life, so it would have been incredibly addictive. How did you get into writing in the first place? Like, is this, I, I know when I was a little kid, I wanted to grow up and be a writer, kind of thing, um, which I only did indirectly. Mm. But um, how, how did you start this out? Um, well, I, I grew up in uh, in Balmain here in Sydney. Uh, I went to Fort Street High School in Petersham. Um, I was always uh, artistic. I was sort of more sort of leaning towards kind of a career as a cartoonist or an artist. Uh, and then... Um, I was I was at a friend's place in Glebe. I must have been fourteen or fifteen or something. And um, I there was a rerun of um, Woody Allen's Manhattan on television, and I'd never like seen it before. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And oh, I, wow. And I watched this film, and and he's a writer in the film, and I just thought this is this is the best. I want to be a writer. I want to, you know. Be, be Woody Allen in Manhattan. I just thought it was the greatest movie ever. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a great film. And, yeah, I guess after that point, I, I, I was more interested in, in sort of becoming a writer. And um, I did journalism at UTS, uh, University of Technology here in Sydney. Um, I felt like it didn't really equip me for anything after I'd graduated so I went sort of straight into un- unemployment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did an English lit degree in yeah. the US. It's a similar trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I worked um, as a bookseller and I was doing some sub-editing for various magazines and, you know, one thing leads to another and then I ended up sort of uh, working as a editor at a sports magazine and then ended up uh, having a career in sports journalism. So I worked in 
I worked for uh, Inside Sport magazine, which was quite a big magazine in the 90s. Sort of then crossed over into um, writing blogs for Fox Sports and then SBS. And then I spent five years writing almost daily um, sports columns for SBS. And I was quite good at that job. It was, it was uh, you know, I had no background in in, in soccer at all. But Were you uh, interested in sport growing up? Oh, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I love about writers. No, it's, it's just that it, I think it was just that it was that the time was right. And, you know, digital kind of journalism was, was, was sort of new. And they just wanted someone, I guess, who could, you know, write about the news of the day or, um, you know, uh, be provocative and, and yeah. in, encourage traffic to the site, yep. you know, drive traffic to the site. And I guess I was good at doing that and, you know, picking whatever the topic of the day was and getting people um, involved in arguments with each other, <laughs> which is, you know. That's a very good driver to, like, of, yeah, of, of traffic, though. It's so. kind of like being a shock jock, I guess, you know, but in print. And I, was, I, I did that for SBS. And then, um, and then during that time, I wrote my first book, which was about... Um, it was called 15 Days in June. That was published in 2007 about um, Australia at the World Cup in 2006. And then I just sort of found myself out of a job and I was living up, we're, we're talking here in Darlinghurst, I, I was living just up in, um, just off Victoria Street here in Darlinghurst. I went up to the Darlow Bar one day and mm. um, started writing a story about... Um, how it felt when my first wife walked out of our marriage and ended up selling that story to, to Marie Claire magazine. Huh. And out of that, I got a book deal to write a book about um, um, my divorce and dating. And, and now, how was that? What happened with that was that, you know, I, I just completely, you know, transitioned from, from sport to a completely different subject, which was sex and relationships. Um, so I, I wrote that book. Um, that came out in 2012. That was my second. Um, and then I started writing for, uh, there was a magazine here called Sunday Style, which is now, I think, Stella magazine. Yep. Then I wrote a book about ACDC. Which, by the way, I have not had a chance to read yet, but having just finished my, you mm. know, my first foray into your books. Um, I'm totally going to read. <laughs> I'm very mm. excited about this. Well, I mean, I should I should say that I actually wrote two books on ACDC. So, oh, sorry, I didn't yeah. realize that there's another because then the Bonds got one. I'm dying to read. Yeah, so um, um, I wrote a book um, called The Youngs in 2013. Okay, I'm going to read that too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was oh god, I mean, it, it was a moment of. Yeah, oh, again, I was living in Darlinghurst um, early in the morning. I was sorting black socks on the end of my bed. I was just feeling kind of despondent and distraught about my life. I felt suicidal. <laughs> I'm sorry. We, this we, this, no, is, this is, truth, is the beginning of the book. In truth, we all, I mean, a lot of a lot of creative people end up there. So, yes, yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> you know, and uh, literally I kind of put on some ACDC and it kind of just sort of helped me get through that moment of darkness. And I thought... Wow, 
you know, the power of that music sort of just helped me through this. Uh, why don't I write a book about it? And so <laughs> I went to um, Alison Urquhart, who's my publisher at Penguin, and said, you know, why don't we do a book on um, Angus Young and Malcolm Young and George Young? She said, fantastic. And so, you know, so I, I then went from sport to relationships to to <laughs> rock and roll. But the but the Youngs was my most successful book, um, t- you know, to that point easily, and then th- and that got published in um, you know fifteen countries or talk- wow yeah I mean like a lot of places, and of course, uh, Alison then had interest in a follow up to the Youngs, so it was a no brainer to do a a biography of Bon Scott, of course, who was a fascinating individual. But that book ended up taking four years to write. I mean, that was a real passion project. Um, and why was that? Uh, because he was such a, such, such a, you know, everyone I, I think no, thinks they know who Bon Scott is, but they don't really know who Bon Scott is and he had a very private life and then there was a sort of a, a stage persona and then there was the real Bon Scott. And when I started, I, I, I kind of hit a, hit a roadblock, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how far am I going to get with this when there doesn't seem to be much to write about that hasn't already been written. And I'm, I'm not the kind of person who, who writes those books that Basically, basically, just regurgitate what another writer has written. Right. You know, I mean, there are many writers like that. Yeah, I know. I just read Pure Narco. It's definitely not like any other Narco yeah. <laughs> I've ever read. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that kind of writer. I know. If I'm going to do it, it has to be has to be different. So, I had literally um, I had a map of America, uh, sort of on my wall. And and what I was doing was kind of you know plotting where ACDC had played a concert you know between 1977 and 79 and what radio stations played ACDC contacted the DJs who worked eight out of ten people um, had nothing to tell me but then I found um, a guy called Neil Mursky who was a had been a, a, a DJ in Florida who then went on to to work for MTV. And he said, um, "Oh yeah, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a, a an interview with Bond that I've, you know I've never played. You can have it. Um, I happen to know um, some people down here in Florida who are hanging out with Bond. But it was kind of like a moment where everything just opened up for me in terms of writing this story because suddenly I had a lead and introduced me to." Uh, a woman who was had had been Bon Scott's girlfriend in in Miami, who was called Holly X in the book, and at the time in in 2015 I was in New York, so I, I went down to Miami, and I met Holly uh, and and stayed with her for, for for a few days, and she told me the story of her relationship with with Bon Scott, which had never been told, and you know sort of. Gave gave me the you know the background really to the 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 Highway to Hell album and the, and the songs on the album and oh my God, you know who, who Bond was writing about and and so on. So I, suddenly you know there was this fantastic um, 
breakthrough really in that story. Uh, you know, and then there are other parts of the story that that um, you know I interweave through you know the, the story of Holly X. So again, you know, sort of like pure narco, you're kind of um, putting together you know a bunch of stories and and, and sort of uh, weaving them all together, and it's a complex process and. Uh, I guess that's why it took so long. That's what I'm thinking. It sounds very much as if it, this sounds like detective work as much as, um, mm. as much as you know. I mean, journalists are detectives to some mm. to some degree. Mm. But wow. Mm. Um, but you know what's interesting is pure narco came out of the Bond book, right? So you know that that's what's fascinating about being a writer is like you know you you take on one book, one subject, and you never know where that's going to lead because it it just opens up different vistas in your life. Yeah, seriously. So uh, back to Piranarca really quickly. I was thinking, um, as you were talking about all the different kind of twists and turns in the in the Bon Scott um, detective trail, there was a moment, um, sort of a crisis of faith moment in the book it's presented as, um, where... <laughs> Lewis had given you some information about hanging out with a high-value guy. I can't, I cannot remember his name. I'm so sorry. Alberto Cecilia Falcon. That's the mm. one Falcon. Yes, mm. he had a hawk in prison or something like that, right? He had a hawk in prison. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, right. yeah. He, a pet hawk. A yeah. pet hawk, as you do. <laughs> and the, the dates weren't lining up, mm. and so you had contacted his um, Falcon's sister. Mm. This well, he, he was like the biggest narco in Mexico before Cha- El Chapo, really. Okay. So uh, Falcon was a character in Narcos Mexico. He was this flamboyant homosexual. That's right. Yeah. You, so you say everyone's so offended by the way that he was, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was presented in. Yeah. yeah. But he, he was a major, major, major narco in Mexico in the 70s. And he was famous because he actually... Um, escaped through a tunnel from prison um, in the 70s. And this was before El Chapo did the same thing, right? right? Um, so in, in, in the narco world, you know, for people who know their narcos, you know, Falcon is a, is a major figure. So, you know, Lewis was talking about uh, catching up with Falcon for coffee in a shopping mall in Mexico City in the late 90s and and uh, when he told me that story it was like wow I mean I've, I didn't know he was even out of prison well, no one knows even what happened to Il- Alberto Cecilia Falcon and if you go into Google there's, there's not much about actually what happened to Alberto Cecilia Falcon but uh, I managed to find his sister um, through Facebook but she was was telling me that you know certain dates that that Lewis had presented sort of didn't match up with her recollection, and there was no possible way that you know Lewis could have met about Alberto Cecilia Falcon. And of course, yeah, at that moment I had like, oh, holy shit, you know, um, this is crisis of confidence, I guess, about what I was doing, and 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 you know who I was talking to. But, you know, Lewis maintained, look, everything that I'm telling you is the truth, you know, that, you know, I made a promise to you that everything um, that I tell you was going to be, was was honest and straightforward. Yeah, but Lewis, you know, she's telling me that this, poss- this this couldn't have happened. He, you know, 
that 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 her recollection of this is completely different, and that, you know this is his own sister. But then, you know, miraculously, you know, 24 hours later, whatever, she comes and says, well, actually, you know, what he's telling you is, you know, yeah, actually might make sense. And suddenly it was like, oh, thank Christ. Yeah, she says, like, I mixed it up with my yeah, father's yeah. death or something. My yeah. yeah, it was like, what? It was weird. It was weird. That is weird, but very interesting. Yeah, and it was pretty quickly resolved, it sounds like. Yeah, but it was a huge relief. <laughs> I bet, I bet. I mean, how much time had you already logged when that happened? Oh, years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, oh, uh, my God. But, you know, everything checked out, you know, and then I actually happened to, you know, contact another, uh, an American guy who knew Falcon, who had sort of hung out with Falcon, met Pablo Escobar, and he, you know, I, I asked him questions about Falcon and, and, you know, his, his interests and, you know, his interest in sort of, um, you know, Roman history, Greek history, yeah. so on. And, and that sort of just tallied with everything that Lewis was telling me. So yeah. obviously, you know, they had met the same person. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Big mm. relief. I felt relief for you. I felt relief for Lewis. It was, a, it was really interesting. So I am going to say thank you so much for coming in to talk to me. And I'm, I'm going to talk to Lewis soon. So mm-hmm. I don't want to, um, I don't want to leave him waiting too long in Miami sure. before we chat sure. with him. Um, but I do want to say to everybody, um, read this book, read Pure Marco. It's amazing. It's going to blow your mind. It's very unlike anything in this genre you will ever read, um, and you won't be sorry. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.